Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday sermons are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, Senior Pastor David Schmaltz. Well, it's hard for a pastor to be gone for the period of time that I was because I don't sit idle in my heart and in my mind. And uh, after as many years as I've been doing this, I've really kind of trained my thinking to always be receiving on behalf of myself and then for you. My heart is out there, always out there, seeking, God, what do you, what do you want for your people? And so I really got filled up, and so I got to apologize. Uh, you're getting ready to get a fire hose here today, so, but I mean, if we don't finish it, no problem, and, and please uh, forgive me if, uh, if we do try to cover too much. But I want to talk about four truths that Christians forget here. I spent re- time recently thinking about why Christians do what they do, especially the negative things that they do. That may not seem like a positive thing, but you've got to understand my bent, how God has made me to be. I'm, I'm a fixer. I, if, I, if I were a doctor, I'd be an emergency room doctor because that's kind of where I'd like to be. And I could chalk it all up to what I see going on to Paul's definition or his prognosis to spiritual, what I call schizophrenia, and what he called, kind of alluded to schizophrenia, or an analysis that he comes to in, in Romans chapter 7, that which he couldn't do, you know, that's what he ends up doing, or what he, he, he knows he shouldn't do, that's what he ends up doing, and the thing he wants to do, he can't do. But I, I don't like just settling with that. I think it does come down to wrong teaching at times, wrong thinking. We might even just call it sin. Even Paul said that he did what he did before he knew Christ because he was passionate, but passionately wrong. That is where it gets tough for us, doesn't it? We can invest a lot of emotion in our life and our quests and our missions, and it takes an incredibly humble person to admit that much of their life was based on misinformation or even outright lies. I think that is why academia as a, as a whole is often hard to change because They've invested millions on textbooks and personas and identities, or even billions of dollars on medicines and health advice, and to finally, or to to admit that what is prescribed might actually do more harm than good. It's kind of a world we live in. But who's to say? That's not mine to say, but it, it is one for me to ponder, some thoughts. A person very close to me died recently and rejected Christ to the very end, which was very heartbreaking. To think that after so many years, as a young person, really, she, she died and with much more life to live, but very, at the very end said no. And I thought about that, and I knew it would be hard for that person to admit that most of their life was based on a lie, because that's what it was going to have to come down to. To accept Christ was also for her to say I've lived all my life as a lie, and all of these things were mistakes. Pretty tough pill to swallow, isn't it? I understood that. And as I've contemplated some of these very emotional things lately, because there were more than just that one thing, I thought about these four Bible teachings that came to the forefront for me that I think Christians easily forget and may have missed altogether for one reason or another. And if it can apply to where we are as a culture right now, I I think it can but it's going to take a lot more thoughtful prayer for you. Can't fix everything right here in 35 minutes. But we can begin a journey. 
first thing I want to talk about is that I think we often forget the point of the Sermon on the Mount. I find a lot of people that are biblically knowledgeable, but they don't understand the themes and how the themes come together, how they tie together with the heart of God and what God was doing with the life of Christ, with the church, and how that's all played out. And so I'm going to take a moment to kind of focus on those things and, again, let you walk it, walk it out. But we forget the point. Jesus was there, and he was teaching in direct contrast to the Ten Commandments on that day as he began teaching from the Sermon on that Mount. And Jesus was focusing on the heart of the law and not just the blind, faithless observance. And kind of all came together in John 8, 7, when he says, let him has, he who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. Which would have been a completely surprising, of course, a shocking, an incredibly wise response to all of those who wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery there on the spot. As Christians, we forget that God is after our hearts and not just our actions. That's what the whole point was about. Jesus didn't ignore the law. He did not ignore what was sin. But he said, look, let me, and you've heard me say this from the pulpit many, many times, is that Jesus was after the heart. He's saying, look, you have forgotten what this is all about. The law has devolved into just a set of actions and, and, and doing what is good, but all with a motive that is still selfish, still jealous, still bitter. And he's saying, look, None of that is, is, is right or real without the heart. And when we don't understand this, we can wander into a, a lifeless religion all over again. And I say all over again because what I mean is that we begin to act like the Jews did, who had the covenants, who had the presence of God, who had the miracles, who had everything that we yearned to have seen, and said, well, certainly if I'd seen all that, I would have been a follower of God. No, no. We would have all done exactly as the Jews did. And so, in the same way, having experienced so many wonderful things in the gospel and what Jesus has done, there is a, there is a tendency, a, uh, a temptation to want to become that all over again. Because then we, again, as I said, we begin to forget what God was really after in our heart. And if we just want to, as Christians, go through the actions and just act like we're loving or act... And, and, and act like we're Christian, but yet at the very heart of it, we go back out to the world and we're hateful and we're jealous and we're bitter and we pick up the, 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 the poster signs, we pick up the, the, you know, the, uh, the picket signs and we go out and we act nothing like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, then we have really missed something, have we not? Incredibly. And so the Sermon on the Mount as powerful as it is, is not just a redoing of the law so that we, we feel bad about ourselves. Jesus said, look, what, it was, what it's always been about is you understanding the Father's heart. And we'll, I'll expand on that. <coughs> Excuse me. And when it does devolve into what I've described, it's sad and most certainly breaks the heart of God to see Christians going through the motions yet without a relationship. So, so what we understand in these teachings is that, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, is that sin begins in the heart and then manifests itself in our actions. That is a very New Testament. That is, that is what Paul spends a preponderance of his teaching in the epistles to describe. He said that's what it's all about. We're, we're going to talk about actions, but the reason those actions are played out is because of a broken heart, of a sinful heart. 
We tend to only feel sorrow when we're caught in our sin or suffer the consequences. That's very human nature. But God wants a lot more. He wants us to understand the process well before we get to that place. Paul called it godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow. Jesus was after the much deeper issue. Our sin hurts the heart of God for two basic reasons. One, that sin really hurts us. I mean, think about it for a minute. Does my sin defame God in some ways? I guess it does. I guess it can defame the cross as being a Christian, but it doesn't, it doesn't harm God. It doesn't affect his power. It doesn't do anything. God is always going to be God. He's always going to be who he is. So I don't, I don't mess him up in any way, shape, or form. What sin does is hurts you and me. That's what it does. And two, Jesus, speaking of this in, in uh, past tense, Jesus was going to die, or future tense, that Jesus was going to die for all of our sins. So the Father knew that. And when it comes to that deeper issue, whenever we continue in the sin, whenever we continue to make a mockery of Christianity by ignoring what's really going on the inside and yet trying to go through the religious motions by just going to church, just calling ourselves a cultural Christian, that makes a mockery of the cross. And people know it. And the world will see it. And we will find ourselves in a very powerless situation, which again, I will expand upon here in a few moments. Jesus made it really clear. He said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his heart and mouth. And he was talking, of course, about eating unclean foods. He was, he was talking about all the law and he was saying, you guys have focused on the wrong thing. He says, what's coming out of your mouth? It's your judgmental attitudes. It's your, your jealousy. It's your ongoing continuing to, to, to force people to be separated and to be hateful. He says, that's what is really defiling your mind. It's what brings the decrepit brokenness into your soul. And in many ways, a curse into your life. He was trying to point that out. He says, you guys think, you think you're attracting the Heavenly Father's blessing upon you in any way, shape, or form if you continue to act that way? He says, no, you belong to your Father who is the devil. Woo! Secondly, we forget about, the second big truth I, I feel that we miss as Christians often is we forget about Paul's powerful teaching on liberty. Now this has been something that I learned many, many years ago. And I found it to be very, very hard to teach. Because <laughs> we, we're, we're just like clunky, almost like two-year-olds in the spirit trying to figure out how to enjoy freedom and yet not let it become something that becomes a bondage to us. It's very, very difficult. But Paul is actually one of the most expanded teachings in the New Testament, Testament, in Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 10, Paul addresses it often. He says, enjoy the freedom that you've been given, but, see, wisdom, faith, and sin are topics intertwined in the, New Test in the two Testaments, but I feel that are broadly misunderstood. Paul puts it all together, and he says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. That's essentially his conclusion. And as Christians... 
we're no longer under the law, the touch not, the taste not, the, the, the observance of special days. We're not, we're not bound to any of that. And it's, and it's proven in Scripture in Acts chapter 15 when the Jerusalem Council comes together and they find out that Christians, I mean, uh, Gentiles are becoming Christians and they're overwhelmed by it. They're also receiving the Holy Spirit. This is something that I feel often pastors completely miss. And, and I'm not here to rail on, on other pastors in any way, shape, or form. I love these guys. We're all doing this together. But I feel like this is something... <laughs> That is so often missed. So there they are, the Acts 15 council, and you know Peter comes in, and Paul is saying, yeah, man, Gentiles are getting saved too. It's amazing, and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit, just like us. And so they have to decide, well, do we convert them to Judaism? Do we make them into us? Do they need to observe the law like we observe the law? Do we, are they being converted to more than just being Christians? Are they becoming you know, Jews first? but then believing in the Messiah-type Jew. You understand what I'm, what I'm saying here? Well, if you read Acts, chapter, Acts 15, you find out they said, no, we can't do that. Why would we hang upon them the laws we ourselves could not even obey? Why should we hang upon them and put upon their shoulders this burden that has only, in the end, brought us death and blindness? point is, look, we have not converted to Judaism as Christians. In other words, the taste not, touch not, the whole burden of the law is not upon our shoulders. But he did make it clear. They, they came to the conclusion. He said, well, but these three things are, are pretty important. They should not eat meat sacrificed to idols, and there's a whole understanding behind that. They should avoid fornication, immorality. Well, that was key. They said, in their culture, they knew it was rampant. And they knew that sexual immorality was much more spiritual than it was physical. So was eating meat sacrificed to idols. They knew and sensed that through the teaching of Christ that there was demonic activity ready to be poured out and, 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 and influence a human being's life when they partook in idolatry, sexual immorality, and then continuing to walk in bitterness, jealousy, Anger, the three topics that Paul keeps coming back to throughout the New Testament. So what it becomes, and Paul gets very, very upset to the, with the, the Colossians and the Galatians when he sees that these Gentiles are actually being drawn to the law to think that they're going to have to, to become Jewish Christians. And he said, why would you want to do that? And so what we find is Paul saying, look, there is an incredible amount of liberty that Christians have, but it's what you do with that liberty that is incredibly powerful. So as Christians, we're no longer under the law. The apostles knew it. Jesus knew that. Paul expounded upon it. But he said in Romans chapter 14 and in those other places, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he says, don't let your liberty lead others astray. He said, because now there's a law that supersedes all the law. You remember what Jesus said about that? They said, he said, look, I give you a new commandment. Commandment? You mean like the Ten Commandments? Yeah. He says, I give you a new commandment. It goes like this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others. And so what we find here in the Apostle 
John picks up on this, and he's the apostle of love for a reason. He's because he not only does he appreciate love, but he sees that theologically love is absolutely the encapsulating. It's what pulls it all together. We've been given this wonderful experience of freedom. We're not under the bondage of the law anymore, but there is another law, and it's our love for our brother. So what he's saying in those teachings, he's saying, look, you're free to do many things. You are free to not to have to walk into the taste. Not, you don't have to observe in any special days, which is, of course, why the church never met on the Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? They did not want to be bound up with that. He, said, he says, so don't let your liberty, though, lead others astray. So we're free. He says, look, I'm free to do many, many things, but I'm not going to use my freedom to cause others to stumble. Oh, boy. Now, this is where it becomes a challenge. This is where it takes, like my kids like to call, adulting in the spirit. Don't let others struggles with freedom rob you of your freedom but at the same time we can't let our freedoms be something that causes them to stumble this requires amazing amount of spiritual maturity the more mature view as paul play, plays it out for us is to abstain abstain from certain things when what we're doing may cause people to stumble but notice the motivation key is that it's for my love for my brother. It's love for my sister. That is my motivation. It's like I can do all things, but I abstain from many for the sake of my children, for the sake of my friends, for the sake of new believers coming into the church, for the sake of all these wonderful things. Do you see the difference between the motivation there? One is, and, and this is where it gets clunky, because I think what happens is because it requires such an, a mature sense of the presence of God is that we just say, you know what, this is way too hard. Let's just rule it all off. Let's just say we don't do any of that. Let's just say that here at our church, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't do this, and you don't do that. That's all bad. Whew. whole lot easier. But can you see what just happened there? in a stroke of a pen, in a decision from an eldership, in one full sweep in a denomination, we have just made ourselves bound to the law all over again. And what will that produce? Death. A lifeless religion. And the reason why I bring this up is because I have battled. <laughs> I have battled with people. I've battled, and I've tried to get after that and to say, look, you know, when people try to criticize, and I find that. And, and, and when you get into a critical spirit, whether it be as a pastor or as a Christian who, who is walking in a level of maturity in a long period of time, is that it can't, again, it's just like they've got the stroke of the pen that can just say, okay, we're not going to do that because it's bad, it leads others astray. Mm. If it's not done out of love, then it's certainly not going to bring any life. So what did Paul cover? Well, he talked about these meat sacrificed to idols. He talked about drinking wine. He talked about observing days of the Jewish calendar, including the Sabbath day. Having a wife. Paul talked about that. Because as, of course, a rabbi, as a 30-year-old um, um, Jewish teacher, Paul would have been required to have a wife. But he chose not to. 
Interesting. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God as he covers all of those things. Isn't that interesting? You see the motivation behind there? It takes an incredibly mature believer to be able to read that verse and know what the heart of it is. Let me read it again. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. So it's not just limited to those things that I just mentioned. Do it all to the glory of God. And therein lies the goal. (laughs) Because we have a new commandment. To love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means it's going to affect our life. It means it's going to affect what are my passions. What are my goals? What am I doing with my money? What am I doing with my relationships? What am I doing with my time? What am I doing to, to bring peace or to bring chaos? Am I loving God with my life? Whatever you do. And then, of course, loving my brother. Is there something in my life, my, my critical spirit? Maybe there's something about my actions, the liberties that I have in my life are causing other people to stumble. We should examine those things. We do try to create the one-size-fits-all, and it's a mistake. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now you understand why he said that. The third thing that I feel like in a teaching that we miss is we forget about, and these are building upon one another, by the way. We forget about John's teaching on love as he played it out in very almost childlike, simplistic ways. Jesus said again, I give you that new command, love one another. And we're all called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and spirit, John 13. And so again, In 1 John 4, 7, and 8, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Again, this is such a simplistic thing, but we just use it as a children's song. But when we think about the grand scheme of things, that when churches and when individuals and people who call themselves Christians that are going out and doing what they're doing in our society are going out there and not acting in love at all, John makes a very, very bold statement. He says, Let, you're not a follower of God. If, the, if what is not characterized from your life is very loving in your speech, very loving in what you post on the internet, what is very loving in what you're putting on Facebook, if it's not very loving, if it's not considerate, if it's not laying down your life, if you're not thinking of your own liberty, if you're using your liberty to tear down other people, whether it be political or otherwise, my friend, you're not acting like Jesus Christ. And I'm sorry. You just aren't. You're not on the team. You've walked to the other side and you're cursing your own players. That ain't any fun. Christians forget that love often, if not always, surpasses our need for being right. That's a hard one to say as a pastor. When you feel like, I know what's right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you say, well, pastors, sometimes you've got to rebuke people. Yes, have done it. Pastors, sometimes you just got to ignore them. Yes, have done that. 
Pastor, you just, you just need to stick to your guns and keep firing from the pulpit. I've done that. But you know what? None of those things seem to change the heart sometimes. Sometimes it's just looking at people and loving them the best you can and leaving them up to God. I don't want the last thing on their mind is my criticism, my judgment, my frustration, my, maybe even my anger. When we fight over disputable matters that I've mentioned here, here earlier, we're no longer acting in love. And the maturest statement, and I love this, this uh, Joseph Aldrich writes a book called uh, Servant Evangelism, no, it's not Servant Evangelism, it's Lifestyle Evangelism. And he does a wonderful job in covering this whole topic. And I love the fact that he starts with the idea of evangelism, because that's where I'm going here too. And when we talk about disputable matters, that's where I think we just really get caught up in things. And, what's, and, and what makes it so hard for me at times as I share my heart here, you know, to sometimes sit down with other pastors and, and really pray. Because there's an agenda of things that we, sometimes we've got to get through to even get to praying. You know? And, and it, it, it's kind of heartbreaking for me, to be honest, to say, man, we've got to get over our high horse of the theological matters. You know, they, they, you know, they want to quote uh, all these different individuals, and I say, look, can we just get to praying and asking God to help us? Maybe that'll help us a little bit. I mean, we can argue about how you get saved, and we can argue about what the church ought to look like, and, and whether we should have the kind of music we have, or maybe occasionally blowing a little smoke out of there to just kind of give us the ambiance. You know? We can fight about all that, but can we just pray? And ask God to help us. I think we've got some bigger things going on here. If there's one topic we all need to learn much more about, that's love. And if we ever are going to make this bride of Christ thing work, we're going to have to get over our insecurities, our preferences, our opinions, opinions on aging and youthfulness, and what youth do or don't do, what they wear or don't wear, our petty disagreements, our racial discord, our jealousies, our petty offenses, and our political differences. Time to move on, Christians. Love will supersede all of it, if we let it. And then finally, we forget to share our faith. I think that's a big mistake for Christians. In these teachings, we find that the overarching point to all of this is twofold. That one, we stay in fellowship with God and man, and two, that we love the lost so much that we have to share Christ with them. Because see, in all of this business that we're getting caught up in fighting about what we can eat and what we can, can't eat, or when we should meet, when we shouldn't meet, or what we should eat and, and drink and, and, and what can happen during worship. Well, as we're fighting about, about that, thousands, millions, billions of people are going to hell. And when we get to heaven, God's going to say, man, you guys took up a lot of time fighting over the silliest stuff. Being a sinless person tends to make us proud and unproductive. Think about that for a minute. The pursuit of perfection 
It takes so much. You know, I know some people that, you know, obviously I won't mention anybody by name, but I, I know aging people, I know seniors, I know people that, and I had a, a friend come up to me at the time, he said, you know, it's amazing. The older you get, the more time you spend on maintaining your life, just keeping yourself breathing in and out. And, you know, sitting with people I love, and they're just always talking about doctors, going to the next doctor appointment, going here. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And, and I'm not criticizing that, because, you know, Lord, you know, I don't know, I guess it's coming my way, Lord help me. But the truth is, what happens is, it's very much like what happens with us as Christians. We just get so caught up. And what I'm saying is sometimes we're always thinking about the next doctor appointment, about the next medicine, about whether I can walk or whether I can't walk. We don't just sit and enjoy life. Just wheel me in front of the stinking window so I can enjoy the birds, okay? And as Christians, it's the same way. We get caught up with so many of these little things that we don't stop and realize that there is a lost world around us. And sometimes these people are so hungry, all they need to hear is just a loving person share the gospel with them rather than slap a beer in their hand. Being broken and saved by grace. Being a broken and saved by grace person makes us teachable and desiring to reach our fellow man. Boy, have I found that to be true. When we're more aware of who we really are because we're embracing God and we're loving people, and what happens to love people, you have to deal with your own stupidity. You have to deal with your judgmental attitudes. You've got to to cross the aisle. You've got to deal with what's going on the inside or you're going to just be a fake. And nobody does really something they don't enjoy very long or what they really believe. So to reach our fellow man, we've got to deal with that stuff. Many people who walk in legalism, I'm going to get through these points real quickly, tend to lose their children to the world. Why? Because they're more interested in teaching holiness and conformity than taking the time to help their children see the world for what it is, broken and need of saving. If evangelism is not in the topic of discussion in your home, then you're going to lose your kids. I'm sorry shooting it plain. I see it all the time. Touch not, taste not, causes an unrealistic view of the world. And as parents, we should not treat the world as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, just don't touch it. Well, we know how that worked out, didn't we? Help them negotiate what is happening in the world by talking, discussing, reading scripture together, explaining God's love, his mercy, and truth, beginning with them. Then, when we get to the place where we can share our faith, not out of judgment, our desire will continue to keep our, desire, our, our lives free of worldly entanglements. It's going to help us in our personal pursuit of, of holiness. And I found that to be so true, that when we make an exchange, and that's really what Jesus was talking about. He says, look, what is the Father's burden? The Father's burden is for the planet, is for his people. And when we make the exchange and stop worrying so much about how holy and perfect I can become and and make the exchange and say, well, I don't even know what to do with me, Lord, but I ask you to give me a passion for people. That what I have found is that God takes care of all that's going on inside me. And that's awesome. But so powerfully true. And, And powerfully true, rather.
See, when we get to the place where if we have gotten so entangled, we've forgotten love for people, and we're, we're so caught up in the touch not, the taste not, and we're, we're, we're focused more on religion than we are in the life and the joy of being believers, then we no longer have a message. We, and, and when you don't have a message, you don't have an audience. You may have a message, but nobody wants to hear it. A big message of success in life because of the grace of God and his healing inside you is going to draw a much larger audience. <laughs> when all you want to talk about, and, and man, I find that sometimes that, that dazed over or what I call the glazed look of, of fundamental intensity is just like, man, I'm sorry, I can't deal with that. You want to talk about Jesus? You want to talk about changing the world? Then let's do that. 1 Corinthians 10, 33, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. In another translation, he says, I become all things to all men, that I might gain a soul. That is a totally different philosophy of ministry, isn't it? I mean, think of that for a minute. Paul crossed the aisle in many different ways, both in ultra ultra-Orthodox belief in his Jewish faith, all the way to hanging out with pagans and Greek, you know, people that had regular sexual intercourse with demon-filled prostitutes. He crossed the aisle to share the gospel with all of them. So I want to ask you, that, and finally, when you think of all these things, and certainly, as I said, it's, it's going to stir up a lot of thought. And I, and, you know, if I've convinced you only of a few things, the only thing I wish I, I hope to have convinced you of is that you're going to dig a little deeper. And that you'll begin to pray and ask God. But I want to finish with this. We made a pact at the beginning of the year that we were going to share the gospel with at least one person. And that if all the church did that all across the nation, if we just shared the gospel with one, per, one convert, we would double the church in one year. Pretty cool. So I want to challenge you. Where are you on that? Have you led a person to Christ? Here we are, a little over six months into this year. Have you led one person to Christ yet? You shared your faith with someone. Keep it up. Keep asking God for that soul. Because remember, that's the only question that's going to be on the test for Christians. What did you do with what I gave you? Did you share it? I'm not going to talk to you about whether you drank wine or not. I'm not going to talk to you about how, how often you went to church and on what days you went to church. I'm not going to talk to you about the foods that you ate, whether you ate a whole lot of pork or whether you didn't. A whole lot of hot dogs or just hamburger. I'm not going to talk to you about any of that. What he's going to talk to you about is how did you love people? Did you take time to do that? Did you use the wonderful liberty that I gave you to make you free to reach people? to walk into a bar and share the gospel. Or to spend time near people that would be considered untouchable or unapproachable, yet to share the gospel because, man, you're free. I know I don't have to do that stuff. I don't partake in that because I don't need to. See? Folks, those are the things I think we need to get right, and we need to spend ask time asking God to help us get them right so that we can be the bride of Christ that really changes the world. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up this morning.